Welcome to Free Kiwis. Today we're going to be discussing a book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which was written by Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt, the latter having been a prominent guest on Free Kiwis in the past. Now, The Coddling of the American Mind is a grappling with various problems that seem to be afflicting American culture and have flowed out into the rest of the Anglosphere at least, to do with polarisation and a kind of splitting apart of our, our societies and also a general psychological weakening that the authors see taking place. We should note that this book came out in 2018, so it was sort of written in the period 2015 to 2017, and they talk a lot about that in the book. And I think that, yeah, all the themes which Michael has just uh, mentioned are in the book. Um, I should add as well that it has a particular focus on universities. So I think the thing that motivated the writing of this book was a sort of wave of so-called deplatformings in, in some cases with some violence, you know, the speakers getting sort of joggled and um, property damage being done and things like that. So, yeah, one possible way of starting actually is just to soften the title really because the title sounds reasonably aggressive, the, the coddling of the American mind. It sounds kind of like an accusation. But I think that part of the, part of the way this book came into being, part of the genesis of this book was actually Greg Lukianoff suffered from pretty bad depression. I mean, I think it was sort of yeah. near suicidal at some point. And what he did for it was to get the sort of gold standard treatment, which is CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. So, and then he started seeing what was happening on universities and Haidt and Lukianoff both sort of started to draw parallels between what was going down on universities and the kinds of cognitive distortions that CBT talks about. Yes. So the, one of the key ideas behind cognitive behavioral therapy is that you know, our thoughts can lead to very unpleasant mental states, obviously, because if you believe, you know, the world is evil, people are out to get you, you're going to feel bad about it. So, and sometimes that can be true, but in a lot of cases, we just sort of make these problems for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, so, one of the big ones actually there is blame, the kind of outward projection of one's problems onto others. And that seems to me to be a, a particularly strong driver of the kinds of things they're talking about. And it, the sort of it's the flip side of personal responsibility, or the the antithesis of personal responsibility. The the idea that one's problems one has to own oneself and deal with. Instead, it's sort of giving it to everybody else to deal with. Yeah, and again, it might might actually be true in some cases that people have done things wrong and you have to blame them. But oh, it's uh, dangerous to get into the mindset and what they call us versus them mindset, or you know, in CBT, it's often called black or white thinking. Yes, that it's just. I'm completely right, you're completely wrong, or you know, there are, there are good people in the world and there are evil people in the world, and that's all there is to, to say, actually. You know, often life is a lot more complicated than that. I would dare to say always in life, life is, uh, things it's are more, more complicated. complicated. And, and in fact, I mean, of course you're right that sometimes from an objective point of view, one's problems are imposed from the outside. But even then, it's a psychologically stronger position to take responsibility for it. Yeah, it might, it might well be, yeah. So I thought this, was, this would be an interesting way of beginning because, as I say, I, I actually, th if you read this book, even, even though the title, as I say, is quite strong, I think you very much get the impression that Haidt and Lukianoff's arguments are, are really built out of compassion. They're not just yeah. sort of saying, these students are crazy, woke people, let's sort of, you know, abuse them, or let's, let's mock them. They're saying there's something going on in universities which includes a lot of suffering for some of the students involved. Yes, so how do we ameliorate the situation? So okay, so the back of the book, they have this appendix, categories of distorted automatic thoughts. Uh, I mean, there's lots of them. There's maybe 20. But we'll just maybe mention a couple of others because Michael's already brought in one. Uh, here they call it dichotomous thinking. You view events or people in an all or nothing terms, right? Another one is catastrophizing, which has actually sort of started to come into everyday parlance. Uh, you believe that what has happened or will happen will be so awful and unbearable that you won't be able to stand it. So it's the kind of thing, in this context, it might be there's this speaker coming onto campus whose views I find extremely offensive. You know, if he's allowed to do this talk, I'm going to freak out or you know, something terrible tra is traumatic. Happen. Yeah, whereas maybe, it'll, maybe some people will be offended, maybe you will be offended, but probably that's going to be the end of it. You might feel upset for a while, but you could also you know, argue back. So, you know, it, it just might not be that terrible, as terrible a situation as, as, as one might think. Or, or it might actually be turned into a terrible problem for you by, by your own reaction to it. The, the fact that you sort of amplify the, 
seriousness of the offence till it becomes trauma. It need never have become trauma, but if you see it as something that is so deeply harmful, then one's own sort of psychological fragility amplifies it into something that really is a problem. Right, and that's the mechanism behind trigger warnings. This is one of the reasons why trigger warnings don't work as they're supposed to, and there's a lot of empirical evidence on this now, which is, you know, so the idea of a trigger warning is you put a little warning before a text. You say, you know, this text involves, it features sexual assault, or it features murder, or it features suicide. And what studies have repeatedly shown is that doing that can often make people more upset. And the reason seems to be that normally you would just go into a text, even one that includes some of these sort of bad things, just treating it as a text and not really suspecting anything. But then if somebody says, this is going to be, you know, hints at you, this text mm-hmm. might be dangerous. Mm-hmm. You know, then all your kind of psychosomatic reactions are kind of put into gear. You start thinking, oh, when is this coming? How bad is it going to be? And you might even sort of go into some of these other cognitive distortions like catastrophizing. Yeah. Okay, so that's sort of broadly where the book is coming from. I think it's important to sort of put that up front. But there's a very, the book also has a very sort of clear schema very clearly written, very clearly argued. And they start out actually with what they call three bad ideas, which they think... Three great untruths. Exactly. Three great great untruths, which they think are uh, responsible for a lot of the problems in in modern-day universities and and maybe now even more broadly in society. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about these. Number one, we've actually already touched on some of them, but let's just go through them again. Number one, the untruth of fragility. In other words, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Mm Mm-hmm. An inversion of Nietzsche's now cliched maxim that does what won't kill you, what doesn't kill you, will make you stronger. That's right. So, do you want to talk a little bit about this idea of? Because I know you like this idea, Michael, of anti-fragility. Yeah. So, in the world, we can see things that are fragile. That is to say, if they're put under any stress, they they shatter or break. And other things that are resilient, so they can withstand stress. Now. The concept of anti-fragility was actually coined by Nicholas Taleb, not by Haidt and Lukianov, but obviously Haidt and Lukianov pick up on it. Anti-fragile things under an appropriate de- degree of stress actually get stronger. And, and lots of aspects of the human body are like this. Your bones are. If you break a bone, it will actually strengthen itself where it has been fractured as it heals. The immune system is like, is like that. When you are, you are subject to disease or exposed to disease, you produce antibodies and that produces a, a stronger immune response in the future. Many aspects of the brain are also like this. And the contention here is that actually exposing yourself to a certain degree of stress actually increases your resilience to stre- stress. And, and that's the mechanism of anti-fragility in play. Right. So another thing John Haidt talks about is peanut allergies. Yeah. The idea is that once parents started sort of not exposing their kids to nuts at all, that actually increased peanut allergies, right. you know, which is slightly counterintuitive. But the idea is that the body often acts in this way of, you know, it can get used to something and then it can adapt. That's right. As, as with the immune system. And, and, and also one psychology. That's the, that's the important point, I think, for this book. Yeah. yeah, so that's the kicker. And I mean, and this depends on, on a principle that even goes back further than CBT, right? This basic principle of exposure, you know, the, it's the yeah. way that phobias have been treated now for decades and decades, which is, you know, you're afraid of spiders? Okay, we're going to gradually expose you to spiders. Not in a crazy way of like, you know, we throw, throw a poisonous spider at your face in mm-hmm. the first session. More like, you, you know, you take a, a toy spider and you show it to the patient and you let the patient play with it. Yeah. And then you, maybe you have a, a spider in a, a glass cage and then gradually the the fear will diminish. You will get That's exposed right. to this fear and you'll realize that there's no danger. Now, it's a really important point to make that the exposure has to be voluntary. Yeah. If you force pe- people into that situation, then you will absolutely release trauma because if they haven't chosen to do it, then it you will evoke an autonomic nervous system response, a fight-or-flight response, and that won't do any good at all. But if it's voluntary, there's all sorts of things that we can overcome in terms of our fears and, and existential terror even. I, I mean, I think of the, I think it's the Tibetan Buddhists who do death meditation in, in sky burial areas. That That is to say 
dead people are left exposed on mountainsides. That's that's one of the, the Tibetan traditions. And the, the monks or nuns will go and meditate amongst the corpses and contemplate mortality. They're putting themselves voluntarily in a situation where they're absolutely confronting the worst of existential fear, perhaps, our, 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 th- our fear of death. And, yeah. and by so doing, they, they release themselves from that fear over time. Yeah, that's a cool example, yeah. I mean, another one a bit more prosaic is, you know, I've, I've been with people who were afraid of closed spaces or claustrophobia, mm. And then the guidance there was to that they should expose themselves to being in, in elevators and lifts. Yes. So uh, yeah. and, and so then you know the therapist said to this person, just go out on your own with someone you trust, and voluntarily go into a lift and go up one floor. And if you if nothing happens and you feel okay, go up next time. Find another sure. lift that you like under your own steam and go up two floors. Mm. And soon you'll be going up three, four, 17, who knows, right? Depending on how tall the building yeah. is. And, it, um. it, you know, if it's really bad, it can, it could be just, you know, in the first instance, go and look at a list from the outside for five minutes. And Right, right. Yeah. Okay, so so Hayden Lukiana think that this kind of process is also relevant to these uh, campus situations where people are thinking, you know, this is unbearable that people are speaking or that they're putting forward these ideas. Uh, so the idea basically is that, students will actually become more resilient uh, and better able to cope with different ideas um, and different attitudes and different perspectives if they voluntarily expose themselves to them rather than trying to get the university administration to sort of shut down events. That's right. And we, and we sh- so we should move on a little bit because yeah. we, we, we've got the three ba- bad ideas and then lots of other things to cover. But So the second one is the untruth of emotional reasoning and the mm-hmm. subheading in this one is always trust your feelings. Yeah. And this is another important one. Uh, again, it seems to be uh, seems to have a lot of evidence behind it in modern psychology, uh, which is just this idea that your ideas can actually be distorted. It's actually also a sort of older Buddhist idea that a lot of our suffering comes from sort of delusional thoughts. Maybe not completely delusional, as in you're having a hallucination or something. But, but amplification just, of very yeah. small things into into mountains. It, yeah, yeah. It was, it was sort of what I was saying before in relation exactly. to uh, you know feeling offended and then allowing that feeling of offence not to just fade away but to be amplified by whatever discourse internally you have yep. about it until it's the most massive thing in the world. Yeah, so I think most of us are familiar with this, right? You sort of have a bad day in whatever way and you're kind of getting a bit down on yourself and then you're starting to think, yeah, maybe I don't like this town. Maybe I don't mm-hmm. like this job. Maybe I don't like this family, whatever it is, you know. Yeah. And then you have to sort of step back and think, oh, I'm just I'm just in a, in a, a grump. I'm just in a grumpy mood, yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, usually we get, we get better at this as we get older. Maybe not. <laughs> none of us are perfect, of course, at, at this uh, thing. But anyway, so that's another thing that Haight and Lukianov are talking about. And then the untruth of us versus them. So this really is something we've already talked about. So we can do this very briefly, I think. And this is just the idea that life is a battle between good people and evil people. And, and again, Haight and Lukianov think that this style of sort of black and white thinking is part of the problem on campuses, that there's very much a kind of idea that, you know, people with certain views, it's not, not that we can engage them and they might be right about some things that might have something valuable to say. It's more like there are certain attitudes and perspectives which are just completely unacceptable and, you know, anyone who holds these attitudes and perspectives should just be off, off campus. And not only that, it gets associated with whole groups of people. So it might be associated with white people or it might be associated with men. You know, if we're talking about the idea that women are oppressed by patriarchy, then that gets projected onto all men. So it picks up on something that is very much a, a, a natural human state, which is tribalism. So you affiliate with your in-group and, and differentiate yourself from your out-group, from out-groups and then actually find reasons to hate the out-groups and, and then you end up with, with all sorts of conflict. That's exactly right. Yeah. Okay, so here are the, the, these three great untruths, the untruth of fragility, the untruth of emotional reasoning, and the untruth of us versus them. Okay, and then part two of this book, so that was part one of this book, they introduced those, I, I guess. Part two, they sort of do a quick run-through of some of the deplatformings and riots even in some cases that, have, that occurred on American campuses between 2015 and 2017. So they talk about a, a visit to Berkeley, the University of California at Berkeley, by Milo Yiannopoulos, who, I mean, I don't think either of us think Milo Yiannopoulos is the best intellectual ever, but arguably the, the um, reaction to him was a bit overblown. The, the students rioted in Berkeley. They did 500,000 
$100,000 of property damage, both to the university and the town. They shot fireworks into buildings where there were people. They shot fireworks at police. They threw rocks at police and at other students. So, you know, all hell broke loose. And there are various other examples. Heather mm. McDonald talk at Claremont McKenna the following month. Students pr- physically prevented other students from going to the talk. And uh, these are just anecdotes, but Haidt and Lukianov through Heterodox Academy, this sort of international organization that Haidt co-founded to look at sort of polarization in the university, they actually try and quantify how many of these deplatformings there have been. And in this book, they say it 2000, in 2017, deplatformings hit a record level. And I kind of smiled at that because yeah. it, 2018 is actually a really long time ago now in, in terms of this particular movement, in terms of these particular troubles. And I, I suspect that the peak only got higher and higher. I suspect I think the peak so. was something like 2020. Well, um, we, we might come back to this, but it, it seems to me that one huge thing that has changed since 2018 is that what was mostly a, a, an on-campus phenomenon is sort of broken out into the more general culture. I don't know, we, we might come back to that point after we've finished summarising, but I, I, I've got a few things to say about that. So, you say them now, you might forget. Sure. Well, I mean, I think the, the COVID lockdowns somehow facilitated that happening, particularly the, the George Floyd incident. It seemed that at that point, whereas the media had been, and politicians and lots of other people had been very full on about staying home and, and not spreading disease, and, and any kind of violation of that was seen as a, a terrible almost crime against the body politic. After the George Floyd incident, there were massive riots, especially in America but elsewhere in the world as well, and this was somehow justified by the very same people who had been so intensely in favour of lockdowns and and people being isolated from one another because this scourge of systemic racism was even worse than covid I thought that was a very, very odd moment. You know, one day everybody has to stay inside. And it happened in New Zealand too, right? It did, ha- yeah. The next day everybody's outside and, and the government sort of doesn't really say anything about it. And it, interestingly, um, you know, about a year later, when large sections of society started to get sick of lockdowns, especially those whose livelihoods had been decimated by them, they started to protest and the media response was the polar opposite. I was actually caught up in a, in a lockdown in Melbourne and... I was watching the Australian Broadcasting Corporation's news at the time and the the vilification and condemnation of the people protesting lockdowns was in stark contrast to what they were saying a year earlier in relation to the George Floyd protests, which was that you can't really catch COVID outside and so on. So the the, the discourse seemed to be shaped to suit the narrative that, Actually, the media even wanted to to push at a particular time. This is good. I mean, maybe we'll come back to this point as well because mm. I think the only thing I'll say about that is I agree. I agree with you and everything you're saying. However, these aren't these aren't examples of deplatformings per se, are they? No. So that's an interesting thing. So I think that yeah, th- th- things have sort of come on in an interesting way. They developed in an interesting ways. Mm. A lot of this started with deplatformings, and and then we got into later things which seem to have been more overtly sort of ideological. Yeah, because you know, the, the deplatforming thing is sort of like a defensive, a protective mechanism, or it's a would-be protective mechanism. Actually, as we've just been discussing, it doesn't really work. It's it's counterintuitive. But the idea is, oh, there are these scary ideas which can't be allowed to see the light of day. Yes. And that seems to be, you can argue that's like an entirely psychological issue. Whereas I think with a lot of other riots which have happened in recent years, it's been more this thing that people are actually, um, they have positive ideas of their own, you know, and they want to, see these enacted and, they, and they're getting angry about them. So it's almost like <laughs> that can be, al- be allowed a sort of classical parallel. It's like, you know, early dialogues of Plato, it's just this sort of Socrates is very defensive. He's just asking people about their ideas and shooting them down. Middle dialogues of Plato, Socrates starts to be a mouthpiece for substantive views. So, And I know that one of the reasons that Haidt and Lukianov have been criticized is precisely because they see this whole phenomenon, the radicalization of the past few years, almost entirely in psychological terms. And people sort of say, well, what about ideology? Interestingly, I, I had some thoughts on, on this very point when I was rereading the, the, the book. And it made me think of Carl Jung. Now, now I think of Carl Jung quite often because I'm quite a fan. But what I think of is his notion of the collective unconscious. Because it seems to me, I mean, I think it, it's right that 
Luciano van Heights three points there, the, the idea of psychological fragility or anti-fragility, the, the emotional reasoning, and also the, the kind of tribalism that's inherent in the Manichaean view of good versus evil. All of these are, in some sense, built into human psychology. But most of the time, or hopefully a lot of the time, especially in modern liberal democracies, we, we keep these under control with various cultural principles like, like free debate and free speech and tolerance and, and things like that. But for whatever reason, it seems to me that that has become un, unsettled and disturbed at a psychological level in, in many people. And I think that's what Lukianoff and Haidt do focus on, is the, the sort of psychological level. But at some point, those psychological disturbances have broken out into the broader culture. And that's where the, the idea of the collective unconscious is quite interesting. If enough people start to suffer from these psychological maladies, they become sociological and, and political maladies. They, they become something that it's a, a problem that starts to affect society at large, not just individuals. So obviously depression and anxiety are individual afflictions, yep. but it's almost as if anxiety and depression have become projected onto society at large. And so all of these things that they talk about, the, the, fragi the fragility starts to be a, a social or political fragility. Emotional reasoning becomes a valid political argument and tribalism starts to manifest as groups of people actually splitting apart, polarisation. And we see that in some of the data out of Pew Research about the way Republicans and Democrats think about one another. They're starting to hate one another even more over time and ascribe poor motives to one another in greater proportions over time. Yeah, this is actually this is actually a perfect segue to the next thing because although you you you're saying that these are sort of consequences of the of the movement, and I think that's right. They are in some measure consequences. I'm not actually necessarily saying they're consequences. It's almost like a process. That yeah, that's right. That so takes place. I think they're both consequences and causes, right? Yeah. Um, but so in the argument of the coddling of the American mind the way that they present them is in the first place as explanatory threads, what they call explanatory threads. And there are six of these, and you've already touched on the first one, which is polarization. So yeah. exactly as you say, Pew Research is probably the best one on this. So you can ask Americans you know, what they think of people who vote for the opposite party. So you can ask Democrats what they think of Republicans. Mm -hmm. And the number of them that start to say that the you know, people of the, the, of the other party are outright evil has exploded in the, in the past few years. And also stupid. And stupid as well. And I think, uh, I don't know if this is Pew, but I think there are, there's other survey evidence where people ask them, you know, would you mind if your son or daughter was dating someone from the opposite party? Mm. And and those numbers have gone up as well. And that's mm. actually quite worrying because it sort of suggests that these two different worlds developing in America. You yeah. know, they want, people won't even, they won't even date, you know, people in the other group, which is which is often a bad sign, I, I guess. In the long run, if, it, if it's not addressed, it's probably fatal to democracy, which rests on a reasonable degree of goodwill between people of opposite persuasions or different political persuasions. That's right, yeah. Okay, and then the, the sec... So that's... So Haidt and Lukianoff are trying to explain, like, what happened in universities in America between 2015 and 2017 with these deplatformings especially. So polarization is one problem there, obviously, because, you know, if you're a Democrat, and most people on university campuses, especially among uh, faculty, are Democrats, and you see someone who's a strong Republican come onto campus... And, you know, you've gone through this process of polarization where you're more likely to see them as outright evil, not just someone with mm. sort of an interesting alternative view, then you're more likely to go down this path of deplatforming. Second explanatory thread is depression and anxiety, which you've, you've also mentioned. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about that, though, because oh, Haidt has a, has a story about social media and anxiety and depression and, and, and young people in particular. Yeah, that's right. So the, the data do show, especially in young people and actually especially in young women, a massive spike in anxiety and depression, which started to increase around 2014, which happens to be the time that Facebook became available to, to younger people. I, I think 14-year-olds were able to get Facebook accounts at that, at that age, whereas previously you'd, you'd had to be older. And, of course, other social media platforms started to gain a lot of ground, things like Instagram, became big and I think you could say just in general during that first part of 
the second decade of the century, social media went from being something that, well, a lot of people were using already, but to almost ubiquitous in terms of how social discourse was taking place. And they talk about how young people in particular are affected by that when it became their primary mode of communicating with one another and all sorts of dynamics that take place on social media that are likely to amplify feelings of isolation and alienation and on the other side, intense affiliation with a particular tribe or group. Mm. And it has to do with the algorithms, but also in particular with young women, Instagram being a a place where, I mean, as a, a father of a couple of young daughters, it fills me with horror that young women post pictures of themselves online and they get rated and liked and so on. Now, that just seems to amplify forces that have always been difficult for young women as they reach adolescence and beauty becomes a, a standard that they you know, strongly try to, to align with or, or to meet. Live up to. Yeah. To live up to. But to have you know, photoshopped images rated just seems to make that whole standard even more impossible to attain. And it's no wonder then that that has a negative impact on on self-esteem and self-regard that will eventually result in feeling anxious and depressed. Yeah, I mean, there's an old saw, right? Comparisons are invidious. So you start comparing yourself with other people, you know, you may get bitter, you may think you're a failure when you're not because the mind has this tendency to compare yourselves with people who are doing better or they're getting more likes or, or whatever. And it seems That's like right. one of the consequences of social media has been to sort of supercharge this tendency and to allow us access to a lot more information about other people who may be getting more likes than you. Yeah, well, and, it's a uh, form of addiction. And the, the very same dopaminergic system that underpins things like the, the kind of spike of joy you get when you win at a poker machine or, or when something really good happens you get a bit of that each time you get a like on a on a, a Facebook or Instagram post and then you get addicted to that so you're constantly referring back to it did i get any more likes you're chasing that 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 little spike and and when you don't get it or you don't get enough actually you, you get depressed and and yeah okay uh, the, you're doing really good segues today so without even realizing it so you've <laughs> also just touched upon parent touched on parenting and this is the third explanatory thread in Haidt Lukianov's book. So accounting for all, you know, explaining the strange growth and deplatformings and trigger warnings on campus. So parenting, so what's the story about this with, with sort of parenting becoming more coddling? Yeah, right. So uh, um, they, they, they kind of have two big arguments for how this fragility has come about in young people. And one of them is social media. The other goes back a bit further into the the culture of safetyism and in particular what you might call helicopter parenting. So overprotection of of children from quite a young age. So, you know, when I was a small child, it was quite common and acceptable for us as five, six-year-olds to take off in small groups to explore the the neighbourhood or go into the bush and muck around. Now that would be seen as irresponsible parenting to allow young people to do that. And and John Haidt, I think, in particular, is an exponent of this idea of free-range kids, the, the idea that you give them as much independence as you can, you know, without taking undue risk, but to accept that life does entail some risk and, and if we're not prepared to expose our children to it, then they won't develop that sort of anti, anti-fragile resilience that we were talking about in the face of risk and will be unprepared to take it, and, and will see more threat than is warranted in all sorts of things, because they've never been exposed to those things enough to develop a more realistic assessment of, of where risk really lies. Yeah, so those two things, so parenting and the loss of free play, the decline in free play, those are actually two separate explanatory threads, but obviously they go together. Yeah. So and I think Haidt and Lukianov tell the story, especially, it's really an America-based story, but they're Americans, so that makes sense of 
things are, things have actually gotten safer over time in American cities. But there was a sort of spike in crime in the 80s and 90s, and this was picked up on by the press, as the press does, because they like to emphasize negative things because it sells more papers, mm-hmm. which is sort of always the way that it has worked. And, and they started doing things like putting faces of missing children on milk cartons. So there was there was a lot of salience. So the, the idea that the world is dangerous, American cities are dangerous, and you know, kids shouldn't be on their own, achieved a lot of sort of psychological salience. It was in a lot of people's minds. Even though the the overall trends, as Steven Pinker would say, you know, you have to focus on the on the trend lines, not the headlines. The overall trends were actually, especially after the '90s, that violence has actually declined. So you're actually safer now than in American a lot of American suburbs than than in yeah. the past. I don't know about maybe very recently it spiked again. But, well, I think uh, uh, there are, there are fluctuations over yeah. time, and things happen yeah. that can cause short-term increases, but it is certainly true that on just about any metric, the world has got safer yeah. and safer and safer. Yeah. yeah. And so a kid walking home on their own from school probably is, is not a problem. But it's interesting because we, John Haidt obviously came to New Zealand, and you know this is the reason that we met, because we met after John Haidt talk. That's right. But uh, And we interviewed him for Free Kiwis, and I definitely encourage people to go listen to that interview, re-listen to that interview if you want. But he takes a very positive view of New Zealand, and he, I, I think, thinks that... New Zealand has largely sort of avoided these trends of coddling and sort of keeping kids inside and things that have happened in America. So, uh, mm-hmm. and I think there's even a there's even a document online somewhere. I'll try and find it where um, John Haidt and some New Zealand collaborators are kind of compiling uh, examples of this coddling culture coming into New Zealand. But yeah. so, what do you think, Michael? I mean, as as a parent, do you think that this is New Zealand kids really are sort of more resilient and they're allowed to be free range more than American kids? I think perhaps more than American kids, but much less than was the case a few decades ago. So I think there's no doubt that New Zealand is also subject to this sort of safetyist approach, but perhaps not to the same degree as in in North America or, or I, I can't really speak for the UK or, or I mean, I think Australia might be quite similar to New Zealand, but... Whatever it is, it's it's certainly increased over time here. This this kind of overprotectiveness, and certainly as as a parent, I try to resist it and and give my children as much independence as possible. And you know, obviously, one doesn't want to overdo the risk, but at the same time, you you don't want them to grow up fragile. So. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so then the last explanatory th- thread and Hayden Lukianoff to sort of explain this up, uptick in. Uh, platformings and riots and things on campus or you know minor riots is the growth of protective campus bureaucracy and i'm putting protective in scare quotes because mm. as we've gone through you know there are reasons to think that actually protecting people from ideas is it not only doesn't work it's it's sort of counterproductive so this is a story that interests me because i'm actually working right now uh, at a report for the initiative on on campus bureaucracy in new zealand or sort of non-academics working in universities and I think what I'm going to find is that the, the numbers in New Zealand are higher than in other countries, higher than in the States. Yeah. However, I will say that, you know, there are some examples that have gone around, gone the rounds on social media that of sort of very high spending on would-be protective campus bureaucrats that I don't think we've seen in, in such a sort of florid way in New Zealand. So the University of Michigan, for example, has something like 100 non-academics or administrators dedicated to various sort of diversity and equity issues. We don't have anything like that in New Zealand. However, uh, it's interesting because I think what, what they're trying to get get at here is just that, you know, in these situations where a speaker is deplatformed on the basis that students think it's going to harm them, what often will happen in these situations is that it will, it will go to some office at the university. There's someone who's in charge of booking rooms or, you know, things like that. And the problem seems to be that often these ideas, of what we think are bad ideas, and Haidt and Lukianov also think are bad ideas, they often seem to be held not only by the, some of the students, but also by some of these administrators on campus. Yes, I think in New Zealand, actually, the impulse for deplatforming, such as it's been, and I don't think it's been nearly as bad as it, as it has been in America, but it's come more from administrators uh, in the first instance. I, I think it seems that in America, the, the big pushes, at least in the first place, were, were from the student body. Well, there is some, you do get some flack from the student body. I mean, cause you get some. when we did that New Zealand Free Speech Union, we were helping organize a talk by the New Zealand Free Speech Union or by, by their guest, Carl Dufresne, 
last year and we I put up posters and yeah you know the student some student not all students of course a, a student group was pulling them down and putting up counter posters saying that the free speech union was racist and sexist and all, all these things that's right they to be fair to them at Vic at least they didn't try and stop no, the, they, talk, the, so. the administration stood firm and and you and know, the students good, didn't try and actually good on them the for talk. that but, and there were no students there so actually in that case we there was no serious yep. problem yep. Uh, other universities were different i think at AUT who was the woman who was banned uh, yeah Daphne um, da- that's right yeah i can't remember Whit- Whitmore yeah. yeah. Anyway, there have been instances where that happened, and I she, think she was. It was just just explained briefly. So that was a that was a feminist speaker. That's right. Who wanted to discuss trans issues. Yeah. And she was not allowed to to have her, have her say. That's right. But yeah. if we go back to the first instance of deplatforming in New Zealand, it was the vice chancellor of Massey University, Jan Thomas, who, who very much took a line that Don Brash that previous leader of the National Party and also ACT, different time. His views were beyond the pale, views on, about the Treaty of Waitangi. And she cast about for reasons to ban him. So that that really was the thing that sparked my reaction to the, the cultural trends we're talking about. And that's when I got involved in trying to push back. I think that she said at the time that the reason that she stopped the talk was because she wouldn't be able to ensure the security of the speaker. That's right. That, that's one that they fall back on quite often, and, and maybe somebody has written an email making some kind of a threat, but in the end it became very clear that she was looking for a reason. Yeah, so it came out of her, some of her emails were leaked, and that that's made right. clear that it was, she actually had banned a speaker for political reasons. Yeah. So that is kind of astonishing, you know, Vice Chancellor. We should make clear as well that, you know, we're using administrators in two different senses here, because in, in the States, these administrators who focus on issues that, well, that are responsible for what Height and Lukiano call coddling, they're often non-academics, whereas what we're talking about here is a career academic who's who's gotten into, who has earned a, a high administrative position in That's the case right. of vice chancellor, yeah. which to me is sort of even more surprising because if you're a career academic, it's kind of like journalists are against free speech. It doesn't yeah. really make much sense. If you're a career academic, uh, you would think that you'd be in favor of kind of exchanging ideas and looking into these things. Well, I suppose it depends on what your true values are. If uh, You know, perhaps for one thing, I think we've seen a massive decline in the, in the values of academic freedom and free speech amongst academics in universities, or at least a, a suppression of them, and perhaps some people who still hold them just keep their mouths shut a lot because they fear repercussions. Yeah. But also perhaps those academics who do climb through the university hierarchy to become vice-chancellors might have slightly different motivations sometimes than mainstream academics if they've had their their ambitions set on becoming university leaders, then perhaps they have more political ways of thinking. Yeah, it's an interesting point. I mean, this is the thing. I think I think to some extent, a lot of those people are motivated by things like public service, and that's, that's often the sure. case with public I, service. I, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to to denigrate all, all people of that of that motivation. But, no, but I was I was going to go on to say though. I mean, that that is an element. But I think, you know, people like Gordon Tullock, when they've studied bureaucracies, they've also made the point, well, we shouldn't treat these people as angels. They're not, or saints, you know, they're also motivated by things like getting ahead in their career, making more money, the kind of things that, to some extent, everybody's a little bit motivated by those things too. Mm -hmm. So we should should bear those things in in mind. And, you know, if there's like ideology at the university, which is heavily one way or the other, and you're made to think, you're made to believe probably correctly that in order to get ahead, you have to kind of be more on that side, on one side of the ideological fence than the other, then you get these effects that the, even the people in charge will be more likely to shut shut down free speech, which is, yeah. I think, a problem. Okay, so we have, so these are all these problems that we have in, in New Zealand, maybe less um, dramatically than, than in the States. Height and Lukiana, if we're talking about the States in particular in their book. So let's just, final thing we want to do, maybe we'll do a couple minutes at the end of sort of discussion but their the final part of their book so there's part four i guess are some recommendations and i think well they make three or four recommendations and i'll just go through them pretty quickly so the first one is entwine your identity with freedom of inquiry so that's the idea that you know universities should be proactive in 
putting out statements like the Chicago statement, which we, Michael and I tried to get the vice chancellors of, of New Zealand universities to sign up to, and they didn't. Um, but anyway, this is, <laughs> maybe we'll try again, but the, the idea is make it central to universities that freedom of inquiry is an important thing. That's right. And this is another thing I'll say about administrators. Like I, I don't have a problem with administrators in particular, but it's very interesting to me that it seems like there are people both in the U.S. and New Zealand who are dedicated to these values of diversity and equity, which I don't completely hate. And, you know, and there's lots of good things about those values too. But there never seems to be anyone who's kind of a free speech champion. Like where's the office that's, that's making sure that people can look into things in a free in a free way? Well, I suppose in theory that ought to be the vice chancellor's office. Right. <laughs> well, also it's really interesting to me as well because if you look at the Educa- New Zealand Education Act, it makes very clear that in law, both mm. faculty or academic staff – and students and anyone on a university campus has the right to have unfettered freedom of inquiry. It basically says That's that right. in the law. And even despite that, there's and no sort of office of free speech. Within I mean, it's actually cast as a duty, not only a right. Yeah, that's right. They have to do that, yeah. Okay, so second recommendation of Height and Lukianov is pick the best mix of people for the mission. So this is all about trying to get people onto campuses, into university academic staff, and the student body who have diverse views. So this is... A tricky point because they don't really say how exactly they want to do it because obviously there are loads of problems. We, I think a lot of people on the right would balk at the idea of having sort of affirmative action policies for conservatives. And, right? and, and rightly so. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think the mechanism is actually the first thing that we talked about, which is, which is taking seriously free inquiry. Because if you do, then people of different viewpoints will feel much more comfortable and welcome in the campus environment. As it is, I, I think that the hegemony of certain ideological viewpoints is getting worse because the, the, the few people who might dissent from that are leaving in droves because it's just not a pleasant place to be. Yeah, okay, and then so this goes on to the, the third recommendation of Haight Lukianov, which is orient and educate for, for productive disagreement. And this is something else that we tried with... <laughs> Not much success. But basically the idea is you need to sort of explicitly tell students these days, you know, how science works, how rationality works, how we can disagree in a reasonable way. And we had this idea of doing a whole first year course where we introduced students to sort of basic logic, basic structure of argumentation yeah. and things like that. And I, actually that wasn't shot down, I think, for ideological reasons. It was more no, it wasn't administrative it. reasons. Well, it actually got, it was it of COVID. got derailed by COVID. Yeah. But having, COVID said, response, yeah. having said that, I did get involved in a course where we brought in some of these ideas, which was actually a course for young people who hadn't got university entrance, and we had a preparatory course for them. And I did put in some of the the things that we were thinking about. And there was an exercise that we did with Baptiste, who has also appeared on a Free Kiwis discussion about a year ago. Now, Baptiste Ricot did his PhD in an area called Philosophy for Children, and one of the things that he was interested in was the idea that we could introduce disagreement and discussion in a structured way such that people would get used to the idea of disagreeing and and be more comfortable with it and learn from it and get all the good benefits that we can out of respectful disagreement. And we ran some exercises like that with these young people and Baptiste was helping me on this course. We approached it with a certain degree of trepidation, knowing as we do the extent to which young people seem to have been affected by these bad ideas that Luciano and Haidt write about. And in the very first session, we introduced very innocuous topics for discussion, things like we can never know anything for certain or we should trust experts. Now, that went pretty well, and at the end of the session... I asked them how they'd found it, and it was universally enjoyed, and they actually asked if they could do it again Mm. and do it again with more controversial questions. (laughs) And I, it was one of the best moments of that course for me because I'd made wrong assumptions about how fragile they were going to be. And so I did reschedule things in the course of it so we could do another session the following week and we did introduce more controversial questions, and it went very well again. It's, it's so, a great example. I mean, it just goes back to what we were saying earlier about exposure. You know, you go up yeah. the left one floor, and then you feel, actually, maybe I could go up two floors. And it's sort of like that. But it, in this case, it's even more important because, I mean, going up the, in the left is a, is, a, is a good thing. It's an important thing to do. But 
uh, discussing controversial topics is also like very much at the core of our democracy because we need to discuss those things because right. people have different views on them and we need to find some kind of path through that's satisfying to the to the biggest number of people right but, and but what gave me su- su- such heart from that was that these young people themselves were asking for it yeah, yeah and so and so notwithstanding all of these sort of fragilities that Lucian and von Heidt write about which I, I think are there we we really need to give young people a bit more credit for what they're looking for as well right. and and not allow the very loud voices of perhaps a minority to overshadow the fact that there's a lot of young people who really have a hunger for open inquiry and and want to have that resilience built up and you know we really owe it to them to understand that it is perhaps a minority that are driving things in in the wrong direction and and that as you know the adults in the room or whatever we really need to stand up more for the the ones who perhaps the majority who want to have these conversations yeah, I totally agree with that. So the final recommendation of Height and Lukianov is draw a larger circle around the community. And what they mean by this is basically, again, sort of welcome people with diverse viewpoints into universities and try and chip away at this whole psychology of us versus them. Yeah. It's sort of a hard thing to do because it's easy to get into this sort of mindset. But what do they say? They say host, host civil cross-partisan events for students. In New yeah. Zealand, it's not so much a partisan thing. It's more, I think there is a bit of a culture war. It doesn't so cleanly fall uh, along party lines. But no. anyway, the principle is obvious that just whatever the outgroup is, the university shouldn't really have an outgroup, right? Because it's a public institution, especially yeah. in, maybe in, in, in American, some private universities, you know, they have a Christian emphasis. So there might, maybe there's some um, justification for doing that. But we have universities here that are paid for by all the people of New Zealand. And so there's an even stronger university in these cases that it should be open to everybody in New Zealand. You know? Yeah, well, I mean, I think one thing that we can do in universities and, and elsewhere is de-emphasize the definition of people by group identity. So obviously people do belong to groups and, and the groups that you belong to do affect your identity, whether that's sex or political orientation or ethnicity and so on. These things do affect us. But if we put the individual at the core and say individual identity is paramount and then group identity plays into it, then you're less likely to get tribes forming because then the group identity is more loosely held. Yeah, yeah. So... I think that's one thing that can be done to encourage more open discussion because then you don't have us versus them. You've got a whole lot of different people with different perspectives and that's much more likely to go well. Okay, so let's just very quickly do a little bit of discussion because it's yeah. we've gone through this book and it sounds like we, we both like this book. I mean, I think we knew ahead of time that we both thought this book was helpful, which is probably why we're talking about it. One little objection that just sort of struck me when you were talking earlier Michael, it's just that, so to go back to this way that this book is heavily psychological, uh, is there a point, because we're, we're also big, I know, on trying to teach students about ad hominem. You know, you should look at people's actual arguments. You shouldn't just sort of go, you know, covertly try and undermine them by saying, yeah, what you're saying is crazy, or it's ine- my, my argument is sort of historically inevitable. You shouldn't sort of have recourse to sort of workarounds like that. So could you, would it be fair to say that Haidt and Lukianov are actually kind of ad hominem they're just looking at these students psychological attributes they're not taking on their actual ideological stances in a, in a mature way well uh, i think well jonathan Haidt in particular is extremely compassionate towards people in general and young people especially and i, I don't think although the the title of the book might be seen as a bit polemical the book itself comes across in that way at all and mm. i do think they're at pains to take seriously some of the Issues. I, I, I mean, you said yourself before that th- there is something to be applauded in wanting more diversity of, of the kinds of people we see on campus. And, you know, it would be great if we saw some e- equalisation of some of the injustices of the past or some rectification of those things. Things like racism and sexism ha- have been massive issues for people has held them back and 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 there's there's time to be given to those things but it's just when those things become so entrenched and so ideological that we start to see problems so no i i don't really think they're 
discounting those things. Yeah, and I would say that I think the, the book is kind of aimed at this phenomenon of deplatforming. So when things do actually become slightly violent and there's you know, fisticuffs and students are prevented from going to certain talks, that's what they're trying to ameliorate in, that, in this book. And so there yeah. I think it makes sense to look at these psychological mechanisms. I mean, what they're doing here doesn't preclude actually having substantive arguments about some of these issues. And I think that right. I've seen both Haidt and Lukiana do that in other contexts more. Well, well of um, course. And, and, and neither are they just accusing, as it were, the, the progressive left of the problem. That's right. I, that, that's right. And we've sort of, uh, maybe we've focused too much on that in, in this interview. But yeah, they do talk a lot, exa- uh, for example, about the rally in Charlottesville in the United States. That's right. Was, which was, did generally, often people fl- throw around these terms, white supremacists, alt-right, etc. But there were genuinely nasty... Uh, alt-right people, white supremacists, there was a death, you know, so that was obviously, there's obviously very serious right-wing violence in the States too, and of course the January 6th riot in the Capitol is is another example of that. Yeah. So that might come out of some of these same mechanisms, even though it's not confined to campus in quite the same way. Well, And they talk about a sort of nasty feedback loop that drives polarisation, and and I was thinking about that in terms of perceived threat, Obviously, if, you, if you've got a group of people who feel threatened by external forces, that is likely to increase internal adherence to shared points of view and also increase rejection of, of the points of view of other groups. And when it comes to perceived threat, the, the, the actual threat level of threat is, isn't the issue. It's, it's actually how great the perceived threat is. And so the more we get this kind of sense that the other group is more powerful and I, th- I think those on the extreme right feel that because they look at the institutions of university, even government, and see a dominant ideology that they disagree with and so they're seeing a threat from power in that way. But then also the, on the other side, the progressive left have a discourse that the truly powerful are, are the privileged groups of white people, men, straight people and so on. And so they, they're starting to cast them as the ones who are the problem. And that just exacerbates the degree to which these different political tribes are alienated from one another and hate one another. Exactly. Okay, we really should wrap up. I'll just say in the end, uh, uh, as a conclusion in a way, but also a, a link to a possible next episode, is that, yeah, I mean, I do think that this is a great book. It's really useful, really interesting. It's very clear. P- anyone who's interested in what's happening in very readable. U- university, very readable mm-hmm. ac- universities across the Anglophone world should read it. I do think that the critique that we've already been making is a sound one, that, that there's an extent to which what's missing from this book is an account of the sort of substantive ideology, the sort of weird far-left identitarian ideology. And I also think, just to, it's important to add this, that there's also you know weird substantive ideas, extreme ideas that have taken over certain aspects of the American right. Maybe they exist to some extent in New Zealand too. So it is important to look at those ideological aspects too. And so I think one thing that we we are planning to do, I don't know if we're going to get to it, but hopefully we will, is to also talk about another book that came out around the same time, which is Cynical Theories by James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. And that book really does do a, a deep dive into where do all these weird ideas that are now present on university campuses come from. Yeah. I mean, Luke Arnoff and Height do touch on Marcuse's essay in the 1960s about repressive tolerance, which might be something that we'll raise in more detail when we, yep. we talk about cynical theories. Okay, let's just have that as a teaser then. What is repressive tolerance? Maybe you'll, yeah. we'll find out in the next go, exciting go, episode or on, future exciting episode of Free Kiwis. Your homework is to go look it up before we, <laughs> That's we right. have that episode. Perfect. Okay. Thank Excellent. you, Michael. Thank, Thank you, James. You James. Yep. And uh, cheers. Thank you, audience. We'll see you next time.